closing in on our 100th episode. The countdown is officially on. This is InGoal Radio, the podcast. Darren Millard, along with the co-founders of InGoal Magazine, David Hutchison and Kevin Woodley. Today, in the gear segment, we will look to the warrior chest protectors. And in our feature interview, catch up with longtime National Hockey League goaltender. He was part of that great uh, LA Kings franchise when Wayne Gretzky arrived in Southern California and he joined on that run to the Stanley Cup final back in 1993. Kelly Rudy will stop by and now a broadcaster with Hockey Night in Canada and with Sportsnet and the Calgary Flames broadcast. So a lot going on on today's episode. Uh, Woody, uh, this, is a, this is a good one for you because we had three people uh, asking questions to Kelly Rudy and you said, I will step back. I promise I will be in the background. And for the most part, you did a pretty good job. And yet I still managed to get ripped for how much I talk. Uh, that was from Kelly, and uh, I didn't realize that he knew you that well, but he was right on the money. He he may have shot to the front of the, the, the line when it comes to badgering Woody about being long-winded. Hey, I was going to ask, too, and speaking of Kelly, like, and you're teasing the 100th episode, is this just like natural luck and synergy, but episode 93, and of course, you talked about that run to the Stanley Cup final in 93. Obviously, his career was much more than that and continues to be, but... Uh, that was kind of one of the highlights of it. You're right. We talked a lot about uh, the 1993 run and uh, his experiences. Uh, it seems to me, I, I don't remember Kelly Rudy not playing with uh, brown pads or gloves. Like He always seemed to have a colored set, even on the, the pictures that I see from his New York Islander days. Uh, and then obviously I got really uh, into the detail of, uh, of his kit. But uh, Hutch, uh, he was sort of a, the forefront of, of colored gear. I think he was. I've got a photo of him with some brown pads, actually, with you the do. New York Islanders. Yeah, but the but the gloves were blue and orange, and he had a blue stick and uh, well known Jofa helmet of his too. Uh, yeah, I just I just love his style, and I, I have to be honest. Um, I didn't know as much as I probably should about Kelly, uh, having grown up watching him play, and uh, I think I gained sort of new appreciation when I happened to turn on that '93 Stanley Cup final and watch one of those games recently. And really loved watching him play. A ton of fun. And uh, so, you know, learned a, learned a ton in sort of getting ready for the interview. And I, I just loved his, his thoughts as we spoke on the position. His, the level of detail that he approached it with. The fact that he learned it uh, from a young age, from the Jacques Plante book, and was such a student of the game. Uh, I think kind of surprised me. Because honestly, when you watch him play in that 93 Stanley Cup final... You get the feeling he thinks the bottom of the of the faceoff circles is part of the goal crease. He's uh, <laughs> he's one of the most aggressive guys I've ever seen, and yet yet he he prides himself on having come into the league with with structure in his game. I was fascinated. One of my favorite parts was how he tied in that knowledge and all the things that he did to today's game, and how he talked about you know going through pro reads at ingolmag.com and listening to Carter Hart share his breakdown of a play and how and saying. It was the same as how he would have done it. So there were some fascinating. I'd love this conversation. I know our listeners will too. There were some fascinating parts that I never would have guessed, to be honest with you. And he's a he's a gear guy because he talks in the interview and uh, takes us through the the sort of evolution of uh, spicing up uh, his equipment uh, with uh, with different team paraphernalia or logos and and really getting uh, uh, into. Uh, Dressing up his pads, in fact, and and just as he as he talks about it, people, when you listen to Kelly's enthusiasm about what he did with his gear, 
Uh, think about how much fun he would have at the hockey shop, Source for Sports Surrey, thehockeyshop.com. I mean, he would be in just absolute uh, heaven. Can I still use the word heaven? You can use it in that description. We, we'll, we'll, we'll stick with utopia when we talk to Cam later on for, for, for copyright purposes or what have you. Um, but you're right. That's a great, great point. Uh, and it's not just that they have the latest and the greatest on the shelf there for you to try, for you to get fitted. Um, guys like Cam, Matt, Wibb and his staff to make sure that it's the right equipment to fit your game, that it's the right size to fit where you are now. And if you're still growing, where you're going to be throughout the season. But custom gear is something that Cam can help you out with as well. doesn't matter the brand. Cam has an understanding of the options. Uh, when we do our reviews here at ingolmag.com, we like to talk about all the different things you can do with a set of pads, all the different custom options and tweaks if you're going to go that way. Well, the best place to go to get a complete list of those options and then to ultimately order the gear is through Cam at the Hockey Shop and thehockeyshop.com. But of course, not everyone is as custom or as stylish as Kelly. Some guys just like to buy off the rack. And I can tell you right now, uh, never been a better time, especially if you're okay with, say, last year's model. Because, well, they already have all the latest and greatest models here on the rack at the Hockey Shop Source for Sports in Surrey. It also means that past models are on sale. In fact, you don't even have to wait to Black Friday to save. They're going to be announcing specials, Black Friday specials, almost daily across all their social media channels and at thehockeyshop.com leading up to Black Friday. There are discounts there now. So whether you're like Kelly Rudy and you want to go full custom or if stock models are okay and discounts are even better, make sure you check them out at the Hockey Shop Source for Sports and thehockeyshop.com. We are on a, uh, a run of uh, chesties uh, and upper body equipment, and I'm just curious from your perspective, gentlemen, are you a tuck or untuck uh, approach with the chesties, and why? I am 100% a tuck because uh, it, it's very slimming. I think at my age, it's really important that you tuck everything in to make it look a little little slimmer. If I could go <laughs> pinstripes, I'd probably do that as well. <laughs> Um, but I think Woody should tell us the story as to why he tucks. You know what the sad part here is, is that I actually have started untucking again too, but I do not leave myself as exposed as I once did as a young Woody first learning the position did with gear that maybe wasn't properly sized. I actually lost an appendix to an untuck. I didn't know that. I did. I was playing at a level that was a little over my head against guys who had played uh, the guy, the shooter had played some pro, um, some minor pro, and I was caught sort of twisted uh, upper body going. We call it counter rotation, right? And a lot of our pro reads, speaking of Carter Hart and pro reads, mm. the lower body was going one way. The upper body was going the other. I wasn't tucked. The pants were sitting a little too low. And so it opened up a gap between the chest protector and the pants. And this guy one teed it right into my sort of lower abdominal region and um, didn't think much of it afterwards. Uh, it left a mark for sure. Kept playing uh, as the night went on. Um, Did the puck go in? No, it went into my belly and hurt. What like happened steak. to the rebound? Well, you uh, made the save. That's the important thing. I, I'm not sure if they tucked the rebound into the net as I was crumpled on the ice or not, Darren. I can't remember. I did, however, suck it up and finish the game. It wasn't until later that night. Um, well, and this is a family program, so we can't describe my, my, the, the time I spent in the washroom um, and, and both ends and all those things. Uh, it was ugly. 
Uh, but this was back in the area of swine flu. And the assumption that my wife made was that I had somehow, the guy that tossed me the beer after the game had been in, mm. in Mexico and somehow he'd brought back swine flu. And I must have this horrific flu as I was basically quite literally crawling on the bathroom floor in and out of the bathroom for the night. She quarantined me, sent me to the front room uh, so that I wouldn't disturb or get the kids sick. I think it was about 5 a.m. when I went into septic shock. And when she came in and found me in the morning, we ended up calling the emergency line and I ended up rushed to the hospital having emergency surgery. I believe the doctor told me there were 10 pounds of gangrenous material they removed from my lower intestines because it had actually ruptured and they couldn't figure it out. They did a biopsy in the material and uh, it was healthy, they said. I don't understand how that's possible after it ruptures, but that's how it was explained to me. And they asked me about this bruise, this puck-shaped bruise, and, and I explained what had happened. And without saying for sure that's 100% what happened, they said that that's the most likely scenario is that the impact that actually caused the appendix rupture. So if we've got doctors out there that are going to say that's total BS, um, you can take it up with my surgeon. But that was, that was the best theory he could come up with how suddenly I ended up in hospital. And believe me, I do not let my wife forget that she isolated me and uh, almost cost me my life that night because we didn't want the kids to get sick. That one comes up quite often. She'll be really happy that I told it on the podcast. Incredible. Well, just blame me. I didn't know the story. That's uh, that's wild uh, because I there's there's two schools. I'm I'm a tuck guy. Uh, I do it partly because of vanity because it does look it does look better uh, out there. You don't have that little paunch, but also because it keeps things uh, just neat and tidy and. And, and in control, but the, 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 what's the benefit of, of untuck uh, and how do you do it properly? Well, I think you just got to make sure you, you, the, the pants come up high enough not to go 80 year old man on you here and pull them up to the, to, to, to the nipples, but you, the pants got to be high enough. Yeah, exactly. Pants got to be high enough and the chest he's got to be long enough is the, is the most important thing. So that gap that I got exploited on me uh, and left me in the hospital can't really be there. I just find sometimes when I tuck that um, it just pushes up a little bit too much uh, underneath the shoulder floaters push up and get into the mask yeah. interference a little bit. Uh, and you guys may you guys may want to be slim. I want to look as big as I can in there. Like we talked about it last week with the CCM Premier and Axis chest protectors. The bigger I look, the better it is. Thank you very much. I'm not skinny anyways, so it's not like I'm trying to pretend anything out there. Just make me look big so the shooters don't think they have anything to shoot at. We'll have to teach you how those tie downs work so the floaters don't come up into your shoulders, Woody. I used to leave it untucked for the longest time. I felt that it actually controlled the rebounds a lot better and actually hurt a little bit less when when the chesty wasn't right up against you. And that was back in the day when the chesty was about, yeah. you know, a centimeter of uh, felt and not much more than that. So that little bit of air cushion and interestingly in in uh, the gear segment this week, uh, Woody and Cam talk a little bit about about an air gap and how that helps as well. So. Uh, that was the reason for me. Still goes back to vanity, though. You don't want the paunch. That that. Well, odd. now I yeah. I didn't look quite then like I do now. So <laughs> uh, Kelly um, Rudy, uh, I think he was a tuck guy. He look, always looked uh, slim and trim, like Uncle Jim uh, in those uh, New York Islanders and uh, the uh, the L.A. Kings and the San Jose Sharks. Uh, forgot about his medicine hat Tiger days. Uh, he was uh, he was a great conversation uh, that uh, that we had uh, earlier. Uh, today and we'll segue into that in just a little bit but first the gear segment presented by the hockey shop source for sports surrey the hockeyshop.com bringing back cam with woody gentlemen 
Welcome back to the Hockey Shop, source for sports. I'm here with Cam Matwiv. We're out in beautiful Surrey, British Columbia. More particularly, we're down here at the lower level of Hockey Shop, um, as I like to call it, Goalie Utopia. We used to call it Goalie Heaven. Had a friendly listener uh, of the Ingo Radio podcast remind us there is an actual store called Goalie Heaven in Toronto. Um, I would prefer not to go to Toronto where, whenever possible. So we changed the name to Goalie Utopia. All the whole, the whole thing about having to die to go to heaven, whereas Utopia is always here. And seriously, folks, like take a look around behind us. Like even in the backdrop, like I guess on the podcast they can't really take a look, but just listen, listen to the pretend. Listen to to the goalie. Listen to the goalie gear. It is all around. It whispers at you. Sweet nothings. Try me on. That's my beer league team. That's not the Pats. <laughs> Grab a glove off the wall. Play with it. Make sure the cam has to then put it back afterwards. Do all these things. That sounds about right. <laughs> Anyways, we're back here in Goalie Utopia with Cam Matwiv. And what did you call this? Two guys in chesties. Two guys in chesties. Today we are wearing the Warrior chest protector cams in the RG5 Pro. Uh, I am in the, Cam, you got to tell me here, RG5 Pro Plus. Plus. The difference between the plus and the pro, walk. I can feel it. You walk me through what the differences are between these two lines. You can visually see it too for those of us that are watching. But that said, I opted for a little bit more traditional today. So that's basically uh, our major differences right off the bat. It's the elbows. More than just the elbows, the entire arm construction itself in particular. Um, starting with the G5 Pro in particular, um, Warrior wanted to have uh, still a little bit more of a traditional unit, um, but still at that elite level of protection. So, you know, your average customer coming in that looks at a mechanical arm and still says, what is that? You know, don't worry, we still have you covered. Um, G5 this year, as opposed to G4 uh, from previous years, and even the RGT2, uh, without getting things too mixed up, this has gone for a little bit more tapered in the shoulder area in particular. Actually, a little bit of a smaller arm floater in particular, just to increase the mobility of the chest, but not sacrifice really too, too much coverage. So just kind of rounding off the shoulders again, making that uh, ease of look and mobility, especially when you're you know, backing out of the driveway kind of thing. They still want to be able to turn your head. Um, protection level of this unit is fantastic. They are still integrating um, their actual um, uh, composite material. Um, in particular, their hypercomp um, is still actually overlayered um, underneath the actual uh, air knit of the chest in particular. Okay, and so for those of us here in the Ingle Radio Podcast, we haven't had a lot, uh, and at inglemag.com, we haven't had a lot of Warrior reviews, long story, but walk us through what that material is. Just a quick overview of what it is and how it works on very, the unit. Very similar to some of the other composite or carbon composites we're seeing from other companies, like we'll call it Bauer in particular with their Curve. Curve, composite. right. Yes. Um, very similar properties, very strong uh, carbon fiber, offering a great deal of protection, but allowing us to reduce the weight overall of the chest. So it helps make it lighter, and when it, it cut, when the puck contacts it, it sort of disperses that impact ra- rather than that's, passing it through. That's correct. And so that's it. On the, on the Pro unit, the RG5 Pro, again, the traditional arms, that's located in the actual forearm and bicep? Actually, it's located all throughout the chest. So it's not just the arms they've added it to. It, right down to the body plate, shoulder floater, sternum plate, um, all throughout the arms in particular. It's a very armored up unit while still offering a great deal of flexibility. I noticed, in, again, you talked about a traditional elbow floater on this one versus the one I'm wearing. That's, the again, the Pro Plus, which has the mechanical arms that Warrior sort of became famous for with their original ritual line. But even on your traditional elbow folders, you said... The floater's a little bit smaller, but in terms of protection, there's multiple layers there underneath that initial layer. And 
Um, it just seems like that's probably going to help you with mobility and absorb a little more impact and probably help you eat a few more pucks in there. Yes, that's correct. The additional segmentation that they've offered to it, uh, again, creating a little bit more of that gap from where the actual impact is to where, you know, you're actually wearing the chest in particular. The more gap I can create there, the greater level of absorption, but also protection level is increased as well with that. Okay. What about the, before we move on to the one I'm wearing, the RG5 Pro Plus, what are some of the other features that feedback that you've heard from goalies that are testing this unit, what do they like the most about it? So those that are familiar with Warrior chest in particular, and even if you're not, the adjustment level of these chests is always very, very high. Basically anything on this chest is attached by a piece of Velcro that allows you to move it and dial it into where you would need. The shoulder floaters, the sternum plate, obviously your back plate, two body adjustments to bring it up and down to control your neckline. Great adjustments for actually where the Velcro sits on the body of the chest in particular. No explosives clips here so we're not going to break anything um so the clips are actually i noticed there's two layers around the, the ribs and the clips actually sit no in clips between there, it's just velcro just straight velcro yes okay. that's correct so um again also body extenders too to help you dial in that fit whether or not you tuck or don't tuck um and this is going to integrate with your pants either way so and a couple little loops there underneath in terms of integrating in with the belt? That's correct, yeah. Uh, another opportunity for you to tie down your chest just in a bit of a different fashion. So belly loops. Yes. I like belly loops. <laughs> One more time. No. No. <laughs> no. No belly loops. Let's move on to the RG5 Pro Plus. Now this is, again, this is the key difference here is going to be the arms, like you said, from the wrists all the way up to the shoulders. Uh, walk me through the evolution. We haven't been in this here at Ingle since we tested the original version. I would argue that's still a standard bearer review in terms of that first look at something that was really bold and innovative, the mechanical arms that Warriors introduced. How have they evolved over the years and what's different in this unit compared to past? Yeah, I mean, now they've had a chance to refine it uh, by quite a bit. Uh, like commonly referred to as the Robocop arms in particular. Um, I would say a little bit unfairly tagged because as you found out, even with you putting them on, you have very supreme mobility with it. Where's my coffee? Oh, I lost my coffee or I'd have a sip. It's all right. He's still able to scratch his nose, which is just as close to being able to take that sip of that coffee. It's a little itchy too. Great mobility with these, but also a supreme level of protection. Um, you have that hypercot material throughout the bicep and the forearm. Um, again, this time there's nothing covering it. You can see it out and exposed. You can hear it right off the bat, but there's a great gap in between of where your actual arm sits in the chest comparative to the actual floater and uh, itself on you in particular. Yeah, you can, you can feel that when you put it on, you can feel where the, the pieces that sort of create that, gra that gap are. It's a little bit different from what I remember of the original ritual in terms of how they create the gap, mm -hmm. but I do remember that gap being very important because it, again, allows for impact absorption. You're not gonna feel those pucks as much. And this is one that I thought was probably an unfair tag when you mentioned the Robocop right out of the gate. I mean, we took it out and tested it with some high-end goalies, uh, some guys who were playing at UBC that went on to play pro uh, overseas. And they were surprised at just how good this thing was at eating pucks, like in terms of controlling rebounds and absorbing pucks. I think when you think of mechanical, you think of blocky, and this doesn't necessarily have to, it may not be quite as sort of fluid as the traditional RG5 Pro that you're wearing, mm -hmm. um, but there's still a great range of motion. You're still able to be reactive in this. And then your other bonus of the, of the squared off mechanical arms 
is anything that hits them is deflected and off into the corner. There's no chance of a puck hitting this, rolling over and ending up in the net. Exactly. Like the squareness of them actually sealing up against your body is one of the biggest, you know, benefits and features of the chest in particular. You know, really going to help to trap those body shots coming into the sides, allow for an ease of seal. Other than that, the actual two bodies of the chest themselves are very, very similar in particular. Um, again, the arms being the biggest call out between the two. You're not going to have any change in level of protection or quality between the two in terms of for the body. Again, it's the arms that are the major call out is the difference. I can flex really well in this. You're looking great. Yeah, there's a great range of motion in this. The other thing that uh, that original unit was, uh, the, the body was a little smaller. Yes. Um, and to the point where I remember talking to guys in the National Hockey League that, that it actually tested it really loved the arms. But again, where every inch of presentation counts, they felt the body you know, was a disadvantage. It was smaller enough. And so guys that actually talked, I remember talking to Chris Mason at the time, how much he loved the arms and was thinking about putting it on a different chest. Now that they've made the presentation, again, like you said, the chest unit itself is similar to the RG5 Pro. They made it nice and big. You don't have, like you're not presenting any smaller in this because of the arms, the way no. you did maybe way back in that first iteration. Those that are familiar with the, like the G4 will notice again the difference in the shoulder floaters having them a little bit rounder so that's keying up on the trend that we've, we have seen with chest recently but one of the major differences is the addition of these two hard elbow caps or not elbow caps sorry shoulder caps in particular that weren't featured on that uh, that older unit really helped to expand the overall size presentation profile of, of it is quite a bit that's bigger right. and the one thing that we did love on that first unit the challenge we always said was going to be making it bigger and present bigger without losing the ability to sort of move your mask around this thing yeah. um, and the way that these shoulder floaters are, are snug to the body, um, like there is a great range of motion. Again, I don't have a mask on right now. I know Warrior Now offers a mask and we can talk about that in a future edition of the podcast. Um, but you can just tell there's not going to be much interference in terms of getting into your stance, getting set and being able to sort of track into pucks and have it worrying about your, your mask sort of hitting your chest and arms. So um, great job by Warrior. Cam, thank you for walking us through the two models. Uh, you can find out more information online. Check them out at the Hockey Shop, sourceforsportsthehockeyshop.com. Where can they get a hold of you if they've got questions? Which models for me? Should I be in the RG5 Pro? Should I be in the RG5 Pro Plus? How is it going to integrate with my pants? How's it going to fit? Arm length? All those questions. Where do they get a hold of you and your crew, Cam? They can give us a call at 604-589-8299. Notice how he like totally, not only does he like for those that are going to get to see this on video, because add a bonus as you're listening to this on the podcast, we are recording this. So we're going to have some, some more active reviews up online in terms of being able to watch it too. What you will note when you get to watch the video is that Cam not only goes into radio voice, he goes into radio eyes. Like it's like he's trying to, oh, I don't know what he's trying to do to the camera, but he's having a good time over here with the radio voice. So Cam, thank you very much. I, I look forward to sharing the video portion with people later on, but for now it's on the In Goal Radio podcast. And as always, we appreciate you taking the time down here in Goal Utopia uh, to film this segment with us. Yes, thanks, Cam. Two men in chess. I like it. You guys uh, got something going there. Uh, and uh, I can't wait to get through uh, all the different uh, components in, in that basement. When I see the video, I just have this yearning to head out to uh, Surrey. And I can't wait for this uh, whole lifestyle that we're living right now to end so I can uh, make a visit there. We can get back to normal life. Tandy Fest and, uh, and Source for Sports and Surrey and the Hockey Shop, thehockeyshop.com. I am on thehockeyshop.com all the time. 
we are going to uh, slide over to our our feature interview uh, brought to you by Sensorina. And how do, how do you think Rudy would have uh, reacted, Woody, to something like Sensorina? I think I think that would have been a tool that he really would have uh, grabbed onto. Yeah, I think because you know, as he talks about in the interview, right, like a desire to make sure he stays on top of the latest developments and something that he carries into his broadcast career, making sure that he's on top of the latest trends. And this is a trend, the Sense Arena virtual reality trainer that we're seeing um, become quite popular in the National Hockey League. Now, uh, we've we've had our last couple of guests, our feature guests, um, talk about it because they're users. Uh, Antoine Bebo has used it. We've got some coming up in the next couple of weeks who have used it as well. I've did, done some articles already on NHL.com. Hutch is trying it. Uh, Billy Ranford's using it with the Los Angeles Kings. It really is amazing to me how Sense Arena has taken virtual reality, something that you can now have at home with, you know, with the simple, the Oculus headset, the headset that they sell and a couple of paddles strapped to your gloves and transform, whether it's your living room, your backyard, whatever space you have into a crease and have shooters, passing pucks, shooting on you. You can have computer generated, you can have real live shooters. And it was fascinating when, uh, when we had the founder on uh, Bob a couple of weeks ago talking about how the shot releases, they recorded the video. And so how that puck comes off a stick and then they mask the puck with the video and, and, and the virtual reality. So how that shooter releases it is directly related to the path that puck travels towards you and all those same visual cues that you would use to pick up a shot in real life translate into this virtual reality environment and talking to guys um, like Antoine Bebo, like Matt Valalta, um, they really do feel like especially the hands and the tracking really are like real life goaltending. And so Sense Arena is something that we're seeing pros use. We're seeing NHL teams um, use it. Hutch is trying it. And I really do think this is something where um, you know, goalie schools are already on board and, and setting up programs using it. I think this is something that people can get on board with on home. And, um, you know, if it's in the budget, uh, it's something that I think you could help not just in terms of COVID times and not being able to get on the ice, it would be a valuable tool, but just on an everyday basis, warming up the eyes, warming up the hands, whether it's before a game, or if you can't get on the ice for a couple of days between a game and practice, there's a real practical application here that I think is going to help goaltenders be better. And absolutely, I think a guy like Kelly Rudy would have, he's a no stone unturned guy, the, the kind we love. He would have looked to find a way to help this make him better. When you've uh, watched Hockey Night in Canada, especially recently in the bubble, uh, you probably saw a couple of times where Kelly Rudy would uh, drop in Goal Magazine and just bring up the fact that uh, he was reaching out to Kevin Woodley and getting some uh, some background on different scenarios. And we do talk about that uh, through the course of the uh, conversation that we have with uh, Kelly Rudy. We don't do this very often, but uh, considering Kelly played in the 90s and played in the Wayne Gretzky era, we thought he'd be perfectly comfortable with a three-on-one. So, Hutch... Woody and I all joined the conversation with Kelly Rudy, our feature interview brought to you by Sense Arena on In Goal Radio, the podcast. Hey, how about it, coach? Who's between the pipes tonight? Well, let me check my roster. Rudy's on duty tonight. I'm going to call it what it is. We're at the, the mercy of Hockey Night in Canada and the, the home studio of Kelly Rudy. This is, uh, this is really cool because this is where you did all the playoffs and, and the bubble. 
from your home. Uh, not exactly your kitchen, but uh, the home. Uh, how, how are you feeling and how are things uh, on your end during this uh, pandemic? You know, I think we're like everybody else. Uh, we've had uh, good times and bad times. And I think uh, everybody feels the same sort of emotions. You know, I think physically it's been difficult for certain people. Um, I think emotionally it's been difficult. And I know financially it's been difficult for a lot of people. So we're in the same boat and we feel for everybody. Uh, Kelly, let's get a little bit of your background uh, playing goal, uh, where you grew up and how you got interested in the position. All right, Darren. So we go back many, many years to uh, my time in a little community called Elmwood in the city of Edmonton. And uh, I decided I want to play organized hockey when I was 11 years old, simply because I wanted to be around my friends more often because all of them played uh, on a hockey team. And so I went to my mom and dad and asked them if I could join a team. And they gave me some great advice. They said, no, you have to learn how to skate for a year. So uh, every single day after school, uh, of course, I'd go home and do my homework and then go to the rink. Of course, that's a lie, but I would go <laughs> to the rink and uh, learn on the outdoor skating rink uh, how to you know, learn my craft about skating. It's the greatest advice in the world. And so I learned... Uh, I was okay, you know, enough to get around and uh, self-taught. Uh, and then the following year, I started to play goal. And it was, as you guys know, it's just the most intoxicating position because there's highs and lows and every day is different. And man alive. Also, guys, I was so fortunate because Elmwood, again, uh, they were looking for goaltenders. And so if you decided to play the position, they would lend you the equipment for the year because uh, my mom and dad, they would not have been able to afford the goalie equipment. So I was so fortunate. I had a lot of luck along the way and some good fortune. Everything sort of came together at the right time. So were you in goal because you were the last one on the team, the last one to, into the pool, or were you in goal because you wanted to play? I wanted to try it. So that summer leading up to the uh, fall training camps, uh, my buddy and I, Jeff Marshall, were playing ball hockey in his yard. And we were having the conversation. Jeff said something to me like, what position do you think you want to try out for? And I had no idea, right? And uh, his dad, Mr. Marshall, happened to be walking by. Seriously, what a stroke of luck. And he overheard our conversation. He said something like, you know, Kelly, I don't want to influence you too much. But honestly, when I watch all the guys here in our backyard play ball hockey and you're in the net, you stop the ball more often than everybody else. So I thought, hmm, that's, you know, I might as well give it a whirl. And that was that. I tried it out uh, in September. I remember watching an Oakland A's World Series game before my first practice on a Saturday afternoon. And my dad almost had to tear me away from the living room because I was so enthralled with the baseball game because I loved playing baseball also. I was a young uh, third baseman on my uh, team. So it was a hard decision stop watching the World Series that year or go to my first ever hockey practice. Very uh, interesting. And the cross-sports uh, uh, thing is is amazing, too. And I think we're, right. we're getting back to that uh, a little oh. bit. When did you turn serious about it then? Oh, boy. I got to say, I think about 17. 17 when I first made the Medicine Hat Tigers because I was – on a slow growth pattern, right? Everybody was uh, better than I was. I was, as I said, I didn't start till I was 12. So I was a slow learner and uh, everybody is way better than me. Honestly, guys, I'd get cut once, twice, three times every fall. And then finally sort of find my spot, yep. whatever level I was going to play. 
And then finally, when I was 16 and I tried out for another AAA or double A team, they didn't have AAA back then. And I got cut again. And I was at that point for the first time in my life, I was really like, yeah, I think I've had enough. I, I mean, I'm 16. I'm not going anywhere. I, I don't like getting cut every single year. It's embarrassing and all that. So I, I go home and my brother goes, listen, do me a favor. Another double A team just called. They want you to try out. Do me a favor. Go. And if, if it doesn't work, then yeah, you know, I understand you, you, you can quit. And, and so I go and somehow I made the team because they only had one goalie. Can you imagine that? <laughs> and uh, I don't know what the deal was, but uh, ended up playing uh, rep hockey for the first time in my life. We, we were a team that started out okay and then got better and better. We ended up winning the Edmonton City title and then going to the Provincials and beating Mike Vernon's team in Calgary. for And so we won the Alberta Provincial title. That year, I sent two letters because there's no junior draft. It was just you'd get sent a letter. So a U.S. minister sent me a letter and the Medicine Hat Tigers sent me a letter. And I didn't know much about junior hockey. We didn't. We were a sports family. But I did look at the hockey news and I saw Medicine Hat was lousy the year before. And U.S., they were a uh, you know, powerhouse. So I thought, you know, maybe I should go try out for Medicine Hat. Not thinking I'm ever going to make it, right? Because uh, I'd been cut all the time. So I was really hoping to make the St. Albert Saints uh, team in the Alberta Junior Hockey League and close to home. So my buddy, again, Jeff, he was a good hockey player himself. So we both had letters to go to Medicine Hat. So we go down there that weekend. And Vic Stasiak was the coach. Wonderful man. Uh, second day of training camp, Vic calls me into his office. So as you guys can imagine, you know what would be on my mind, that I'm getting cut. So within the first two minutes, on my second day in Medicine Hat, he tells me I made the Medicine Hat Tigers. I couldn't believe it. And, I, and so I said something like, well, we have a problem because I thought I was going to get cut. I only brought uh, two T-shirts and one pair of jeans. So <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was going home in like a day or two or three. And, and so we had a good ch chuckle over that. But I had the good fortune. Vic had uh, played with two legendary goaltenders in his life, uh, Terry Sawchuk and Glenn Hall. So he regaled me for about the next two hours, stories of those two great goaltenders. So magical experience to sit in Vic's office and hear those stories. Wow, from from almost quitting to 15-year NHL career. I'm curious, you mentioned self-taught. Obviously, you were in an era long before now where kids have private goalie coaches at seven or eight. How did, did you emulate guys from watching TV? How yeah. did you teach yourself? How did you learn the position? Okay, so I was thinking about this because with your unbelievable website, uh, in Goal Magazine, and uh, the research I've done on it, and I just love playing around on that site and learning everything and from videos and everything. It's very similar, guys, to you go back to uh, late 60s, early 70s. My One of my idols, Jacques Plante, wrote a book, and it was simply called Goaltender. If it, you know, it's, it's an archaic, you know, uh, I, I guess, concept compared to what you guys have, but it's very similar in that you know, every chapter had something to learn about the, you know, uh, crease movements, positioning, all these sorts of things. So that was my in goal magazine, so to speak. It was my tool that I, I looked at every single night. And uh, and so, you know, with progress, we have this incredible uh, site that you guys have and what a benefit to young goalies out there or all goalies because I'm learning. But 
you know, that sort of was, although I was self-taught, I read that book religiously and it taught me everything I needed to know about how to sort of get into the position. Then, of course, you got to go take it on the ice and uh, try it out and learn. When was your first goalie coach? Uh, Ian Young. And that was not until I was with the New York Islanders uh, in the latter part of my career. And Ian had a, he was a pretty spectacular OHL goaltender. And I believe he had an eye injury, a serious eye injury. And so that ended his career. But he was a really popular goalie coach in Ontario. Um, And then for about a year, the Islanders had hired him. But I didn't work a ton with him because, you know, it was kind of like a a new thing. And I don't know if teams really saw the benefit of it. And then finally, when I was traded to Los Angeles, one of the assistant coaches was uh, Cap Raider. And uh, you may remember Cap had a long and uh, brilliant career in the WHA. So Cap and I spent a lot of time, although he wasn't an official goalie coach, he was uh, an assistant coach with our team. He and I had many, many discussions and chats and video sessions about uh, playing goal. So he was a real benefit. And then when I moved on to uh, San Jose, Wayne Thomas was the assistant general manager. And so it wasn't until when I left LA and San Jose did they get real full-time goalie coaches but nonetheless I had somebody to you know work with and uh, a sounding board and and a skilled person really to help me. Kelly it warms my heart to hear you talk about Jacques Blanc's book it's still sitting on the shelf behind me. Wow. Um, Yeah my parents gave it to me when I was probably five years old and and it's not a stretch to say it's a bit of an inspiration for what we're doing now and thank you for your kind words. Mm -hmm. Um, You've you've mentioned before that uh, becoming a broadcaster is a natural transition for a lot of goaltenders because we have a different perspective on the game. Yeah. yeah, I'm curious now as a broadcaster, looking back on Kelly Rudy's career, how would you describe yourself as a goaltender? What were your strengths? Uh, what was your style? Can we describe it? Yeah, for sure. Well, when I first started with the Islanders and when they first drafted me, I was a very structured goaltender for that time. I was, uh, like most guys, a stand-up goalie. I tried to sort of emulate... Uh, Jacques and uh, most more importantly, maybe Bernie Courant because of uh, the age. And uh, so I tried to play that style, yet I sort of knew that the game was changing and I couldn't continue to be that sort of stand up. So as the game sort of uh, changed and I was developing when I was about three years into my time with the Islanders, I tried to adapt to an ever changing game. And so uh, I've been credited as being the first goalie ever to try paddle down. And uh, it started in practice. And uh, man alive, you should have heard Al Ar- Arbor give it to me. He hated <laughs> that move. He hated it. And I love Al. He was like a second father to me. But he just did not see the direction in which uh, the position was changing. He, he just didn't. And I, I tried it, and I, and I was stubborn. And even though Al hated it, and he was really mad at me, tore into me many, many times, I was stubborn enough to try it. Now, here's, here's where it went kind of south for me. The very first time I tried it in practice, I got scored on. <laughs> and, and so that added more fuel to Al's argument. But I knew I, knew I was on track to something. I just didn't know how to quite get it right. And I finally did. And it became such an important move for a number of goalies. And then, as you know, from watching me, um, I had to really adapt. I became more like a hybrid. I just, you know, I had all the structure I needed, 
I like crease movements and all that. But at some point I just became a guy and here's the answer to your question. If I were to critique myself, I was a guy just found a way to uh, stop the puck. So at some point I had technique, but if I figured out at some point that it, that wasn't going to get the job done, abandon the technique and just make a save. And so I was a guy that uh, worked hard, tried to will it to happen. And uh, I cared deeply about the results. You can ask any of my teammates that. that. That was something that I really cared about. Yeah, I don't remember seeing you two-pad stack a lot, but I remember you diving across the like, – Ranford would have been the stacker and you would have been the diver. Yeah, I did start to incorporate the two-pad stack in around 94, 95, but it wasn't my go-to. I didn't really like it that much. Um, it wasn't a, a, a play or a move that came – all that naturally because it, it's an awkward kind of play right and and uh yeah you're right bill ranford and others were better at it but uh, every once in a while i'd certainly throw it in there kelly rudy's with us uh, on in goal radio the podcast uh chatting with us uh as we uh, work our way through this pause and look forward to the national hockey league season uh one thing i've been looking forward to and i've never been able to ask you this or never occurred to ask you this uh, in all our time together but uh, what was the height of your pads what did you wear? Okay, that's a great question because I look back and uh, man alive, they were tiny. So tiny. I started off when I, I think in junior, I think I might have had 36 inch pads. And the older I got, the shorter they became. So then after I started order, ordering 34, 35, and as the season, as they sort of broke down a little bit, I would even shorten them sometimes to 32 inches. And one of the reasons why. I had a magical uh, experience with Glenn Hall one time. So I won't get into how the story went, but, uh, and he was sort of doing a favorite Al Arbor to watch me. And uh, I remember it was at a practice in Calgary and uh, then Glenn watched me. And then he came up to me after and we chatted for a long time about what he thought about my game. And he said, Kelly, you know, I, I think that you should remember to always uh, play to your strength and that's your skating ability. And so you move so well around the crease and I wouldn't, he goes, I, I wouldn't add much length to your pads at all, or I keep them the same. And I always found that was one of the most important to aspects of my game, because although I wasn't big, I certainly got around the crease really well. And, and I always thought I had the agility because of the size of my pads in hindsight, I definitely would have added length to them, but, uh, you know, that's hard to do mid-career, right? You know, when you're going to make that drastic of a change. Not many guys can do it. Maybe Patrick Rao was one of the first guys that really went from having a shorter pad uh, in 86 to 87 to what he went to in his final years, which monumental change. Speaking of your pads, Kelly, you had some incredible style. Um, lots of great sets of gear from, you know, the film role in, in L.A. to the the Sharks ones I just absolutely loved. Uh, any favorites for you? And and where did some of the inspiration for those come from? That's such a great point, David. I love it because uh, that was something that I was really proud of. So when I finally went to the the more uh, current sort of mask, you know, the mask and then the cage and mm -hmm. uh, with uh, Armadillo and uh, who's Don Strauss. How could I ever forget that? I just had a conversation with a guy yesterday about Don. But anyways. So Don was really an inspirational guy for me because uh, it was his artwork, really, that we came up with the idea, another friend of mine, Lane Davis in Los Angeles, with the Hollywood mask. 
And right. that was inspired by Mike Richter because I, I love Mike Richter's and the Statue of Liberty because I always thought when you first come to New York City, what's the number one landmark that you think of? And it's a Statue of Liberty. It was such a simple design. And so when I was coming up with my design in LA, that was, that was the inspiration. What's the number one thing people think of when they go to LA? Well, it's a Hollywood sign. And then to be really cool and innovative, we thought, well, why can't we put artwork on the rest of my equipment, my pads and my gloves? And so I think the first thing was we did an American flag on my pads, which was really cool and, and had never been done before. Then we went to the film reel. And then, like you said, when we went to San Jose, we did the shark's mouth and so on. But I always thought that was really cool. That's why I really loved seeing Henrik Lundqvist. I think it was last week and, and to see his right. setup on Washington and just how beautiful and simple that is. And, you know, no disrespect to the goaltenders and the artists out there right now because the artwork's beautiful, but I have no idea what's on most of those maps. It's so complicated that you know, to the average fan sitting in the stands, they, I'm sure they go, wow, that looks like a beautiful piece of art, but I have no idea what's, what it is. Like standing outside an art gallery, but uh, looking through the windows, it looks good from uh, afar. You think that's valuable, but you can't really get the detail of it. Right. Exactly. I, I mean, I go into the dressing rooms, some of the morning skates, and I, I look at the guy's mask and I go, wow, like, I can't believe the artwork. Don't ask me what it is, because I can't tell you. It's, you know, it, and it might be a deeper meaning for the guy, but to me, I have no idea what it means. Uh, I'm curious, you did uh, a back to training camp, uh, well, you went to training camp uh, with the Calgary Flames uh, the one year as uh, as a content uh, contribution to uh, I did. whether it was uh, a sports center or Hockey Night in Canada, I can't remember uh, who it was for, but what were, I don't know how many years you had off between playing and going to camp, and what do you remember as the biggest difference oh, between boy. the gear setup and, and that experience? Right. Oh my gosh, I, I haven't talked about that project in years and years, Darren. Wow, what a memory. So it was called Basic Training. And uh, how this project came about is I had been retired for three years. So my buddy, again, that Jeff Marshall, he and I are in a pub in Calgary in the summer. Uh, the playoffs had just ended. I just returned home from wherever I was covering the Stanley Cup finals. And we're having a beer. And he goes, You know, Kelly, I was thinking it'd be a cool project. If you went back to training camp with somebody, shot the whole thing, and then showed it on Hockey Night in Canada, show people the dedication it takes for an NHL player during the summer to get ready for a training camp and all that. And I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. But I thought, no team in the world is going to like this project. But so first team I went to were the Calgary Flames, my hometown, and Craig Button was general manager and Greg Gilbert, one of my former teammates, was a coach. So I proposed the idea to them and I'm thinking, I need to get something back. Well, that's stupid and or good luck with some <laughs> other organization. And basically they said quickly, we love it. And so that was September or I mean, June 11th, when we had the first meeting, September 11th of 2001 was the first day of training camp. So that day I went from being really fat and out of shape and we filmed it all, right? Like I took my shirt off, my body fat may have been 14% or more. I had probably put on 12 or 15 pounds after retirement. And so in the three months I went back to, 
188 pounds, my playing weight. I think I went down to about 7% body fat. So I was really proud of myself for the work. We filmed all the training. Uh, like I said, first day of camp was, uh, it happened to be 9-11. And so that was uh, an awful way to start training camp. Uh, but we got through it and then uh, uh, we shot it. it. took five days to shoot that project. And we filmed five segments. And it turned, about, it turned out to be magical. Like it, It's one of my favorite uh, things that we've done simply because it looks so great, filmed in the town of Banff. And man, uh, what a great memory. What, uh, what did you find is the biggest difference? Because the game changes so much from year to year, and you're yeah. on three years. So, so did you wear bigger pads? Uh, what, what do you remember about that? Yeah, Bauer came back on board. I had used Bauer for a lot of years, and they came on board, sent me... Uh, a new setup and everything. And uh, the pads were stiffer, different than what I had known even in three years. Number one thing I, I knew quickly from just even three years, every single goalie at that training camp played butterfly down on their knees early. And I was still trying to stay on my feet a little bit longer than everybody else. And, and so uh, that was uh, a real eye opener for me, how quickly in three years the game had changed. Um, but it was, it was really cool. I mean, I have nothing but the best memories and, uh, it was hard work. I got to tell you what, I remember one of my, uh, things I like sharing this story when I go speaking publicly, because after that project, as I said, I'd lost all the weight and everything. And my wife, Donna and I are driving somewhere in the city, our three daughters in the back seat, And one of our kids goes, dad, are you going to put that weight back on that you lost for the project? <laughs> and Don and Don says no because I'll leave him. And I look over, I look over at her, and I go, "It's that easy." <laughs> but we we stayed together, and I have since put on the weight and more. <laughs> going to work out. That's awesome. I sense you and Darren going back to Vegas camp, maybe, and doing a George Plimpton routine oh, there as well. Right. Um. It, as, as you look at the game now as a broadcaster, and as you brought up there, how much has changed since you played? Uh, you probably, I mean, we watched you in the 93 Cup final here the other day. Um, just love that they're replaying some of those old games because we learned a ton from it, um, quite seriously. But as, as you look back on how, how the game used to look and, and how it looks from where you're sitting today, um, not so much what has changed, but, but what's the same? What's important yeah. for goaltenders that's the same? So true. I, I'm glad you asked that because uh, although it looks vastly different and it is, but certain things will always remain, whether it was when George Vezina played or Jacques Plante or uh, somebody 40, 50 years from now, positioning is always going to be very, very similar. Uh, angles are going to be very similar. And lastly, and most importantly, reading a play. It doesn't matter when you've played this game. Uh, the most important uh, aspect to having success is being able to read a play. And I think that is going back to your question a while ago. That's why a lot of goaltenders are pretty good analysts because you have to read a play and it's not what's actually happening right now. Not what our eyes are seeing. It's trying to figure out what might happen. And you probably have two or three options. And as that's why a goalie, as the play is coming towards you, you're trying to figure out what the player with the puck might do. He might shoot it. But most likely, he's thinking of two or three options himself if, if he's a good player. And is there anything you can do to learn that skill? 
if you were to go back and become a goaltending coach for some reason, how would you educate your goaltenders to to learn that important skill? Hmm. That's a great question. I think you can improve on it, but I don't know if you can actually teach it. I think some of that just has to be, you have to be born with that ability. Um, I think you can improve upon it through video, especially, but you know, at your site, uh, I've, I've been looking at some of the videos about what the goalies saw and how they tried to read a play. And uh, in fact, yesterday I looked at Carter Hart and I've got to tell you, nothing's changed because what he was talking about was everything that my brain was thinking in the moment. So it hadn't changed whatsoever. And, uh, you know, he went through what he was feeling and uh, I thought very, very cool. And that's why I'm really confident to sit here on your website saying that part hasn't changed, never will change. Oh, it's so good to hear, actually, because that was the intent of adding the pro read segment is the idea that kids could see how, you know, how pros look at the game and get those reads. Because like you said, it is hard to teach, but maybe through osmosis and watching it, that was our goal. The other thing you said in terms of skating and how you were a good skater and how important it was, and then going back to camp three years later and guys on their knees, like, do you think we're coming back to that importance? Like of skating and moving has always been important, but but staying on your feet and holding edges and the ability to move. Are you seeing, we've had other guys like Bill Ranford, they think that's becoming increasingly important again. Absolutely, Kev. So I think that it was a a wonderful stretch to watch all the goaltenders and how they had uh, evolved and go to your knees. And uh, it looked really cool. I wish I would have done that because it looked really cool to play that way. But I, it warms my heart. Uh, to see that the guys are staying on their feet just a little bit longer. And by a little bit longer, I'm not saying three or four or five uh, seconds because that's impossible. But if you can stay on your feet just a split second longer and and continue to read the play and evaluate what's happening in front of you, you might have the ability to make a couple more saves that were going in, uh, you know, so often for so long. that was That was driving me a little bit crazy. Uh, the high short side goals that were going in on everybody and and not not hard shots either. Now, I will say the shooters in today's game have never been more accurate, but some of the shots they were scoring on high short side were just ridiculous. They're, they're, you can't give up free goals. You know, the game's too hard. And uh, so that, that I do like the fact that guys are staying on their feet just a split second longer. Where did your stance come from? Because it was it was unique. Uh, I know you you have talked about the book and stuff, but it's still unique. Yeah, and it changed. So it, my it originally came from Jacques Pont and Bernie Perrant, and then I started to widen out my stance. Not if you watch me uh, in my own zone in a face off, then I had that rigid stance, my feet pretty close together. I had my glove quite high, but the glove quite high was just for optics. It had nothing to do with how I wanted to. Uh, show my glove. It was just that I didn't cover a lot of net. And I thought if I put the glove up there, it might give the illusion to the shooter that there's not as much room up there. And But you could see that during the uh, course of a game, when the play was in my end, uh, although I did have an upright stance, my feet became wider and wider the older I got. And it was simply because I changed my game and I did include uh, my version of the butterfly uh, often and, uh, and, you know, going back to those, uh, vintage games you were talking about, David, 
and the Desjardins goal that scored the game-winning goal in game two on me. Uh, and it looked ugly because it was five-hole, and I had a huge, wide, gaping five-hole in that shot. Uh, it surprised me after the game that Eric Desjardins said that uh, although he scored there, uh, I was known for not giving up very many five-hole goals. So he beat me because he used great deception on that. I thought he was going high glove. But, uh, uh, yeah, you know, I just tried to adapt in my stance. Uh, if you were to look at me from 1983 when I joined to 1998 when I quit, it was vastly different. Deception something that's coming around again as well, isn't it? The players, oh, yeah. I think we're probably trying to overpower for a time, but now there's deception in almost every play. Absolutely. So the goaltenders caught up and uh, to that power, and now it's all about deception again. And uh, I've lost track how many times in the last couple, three playoffs that I've, I've talked about. You know, the one thing is, as a broadcaster, you get, can't get stuck in that loop showing every goal and the deception that the player has when he releases the puck. So, uh, But if you watch, and, and people that watch hockey know it, they, they watch the video, they see the puck go in, and they think, okay, I've got to really slow this video down. And now with PBR, we all have the ability to do that. And it's perfect because we know what the go what the shooter is kind of showing the goalie and how he changes it up at the last second. A whole nother level to reading the game. I'm I'm curious. Um, actually, I just learned recently watching an old interview of yours that you were uh, moved to Los Angeles at Wayne Gretzky's request, at least in part. Um, mm -hmm. that, that's very flattering. Uh, yep. we, we always hear Gretzky described, um, for, I, I would say from the perspective almost of a broadcaster, how, you know, he knows where the play is going and what's happening next and so on. But what's it look like from inside the goal crease? What's different? I've never heard him described by a goaltender really. And what makes him special? Okay. Well, man, this could go on forever. So I had the good fortune, yes. Uh, the reason I was traded from New York to LA was simply because of Wayne. Wayne and I got to know each other in the 87 Canada Cup. And uh, when he moved to LA, uh, he basically badgered Bill Torrey uh, starting at the All-Star Game uh, that January into getting me traded. And uh, Bill was uh, reluctant for the longest time, but we our season was off the rails and Bill thought we needed some changes on the island, and so L.A. offered up Doug Cross or uh, Mark Fitzpatrick, uh, Wayne McBean, and Futures. So if uh, the L.A. Kings went beyond the first round that year, then they'd get another pick, and that turned out to be Doug Crossman. So those three guys went to New York, and I went to L.A., and uh, Wayne was cool because he knew a lot about every position. So First of all, I'll tell you a story about the dressing room, and then I'll tell you what I learned from him about playing goal. So what I played with amazing players like New York with Dennis Potvin, Brian Charche, Mike Bossy, Billy Smith, Clark Gillies, and the list goes on and on. But those were five Hall of Famers, and they all had an incredible mind for the game. But here's how Wayne's mind would work. We'd be sitting in the dressing room putting our gear on, and – he would say something like, okay, tonight's game here at home versus Calgary is important because if we win this, we move within two points of the Flames. But also Edmonton, they're in Philly tonight. Tomorrow they're on Long Island, and in two nights they're in Jersey. And he said, and I kind of think Edmonton will win two or three of those. Uh, and uh, Vancouver, they're in Chicago. Then they go home for a three-game home. Like he knew everybody's schedule. And so – 
it was like, and it usually played out like how he kind of saw it. So you're like, holy crap. Not only does he have a mind for our team and what's going on and what we need to do, he knew everybody else's schedule. And so that was phenomenal to me. And then the greatest thing I learned uh, was about, he, Wayne liked the fact that I like to play the puck a lot, but he added a skill to my game that uh, it never occurred to me. And I still talk about it on uh, the broadcast every once in a while. So if if our team has a power play, he told me, move up to maybe as far as the hash marks. Because if the other team tries to ice the puck, you can simply go back out there. And it works perfectly in the second period, more so in the first and third because of a long change in the second period. Race out to that puck and whip it right back up to us. And so the other team, if they're trying to change, they may get caught for too many men and or they can't change because the puck's right back in their own zone. And I recall in game six in 93, when we beat out Vancouver, uh, that exact play happened in the second period. So Kirk McLean was out of his mind that night. They were facing elimination. And late in the second period, we were on the power play. And I did exactly what Wayne asked. I whipped the puck up. They got called for too many men. We scored a goal with a two-man advantage, and we gained the lead, and we ultimately won that game. But had Wayne never mentioned that to me, it never were, would have occurred to me to move up, say, 20 feet outside my crease and play the puck up. That's incredible that he uh, would do it. It makes so much sense, right? It does, right? Surprised me that, well, the, all the coaches that we've had that never came up with it. I, I, I won't reveal what team or what goalie, but... I said something to that uh, nature to him a couple years ago and he looked at me and he goes, well, I never thought of it, but more importantly, we have a, a structured breakout that we like to use. And I'm thinking, okay, so you're going to come all the way back to your own zone, waste 25 seconds coming back, regrouping, and then going back, allowing the other team to change. I'm thinking, what's going on here? It's 2018. <laughs> And I'm just telling you, 20 years ago, we knew better. Just to drop it to the late guy coming through the neutral zone to beat right. the trap. Yeah, that, 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 that's exactly <laughs> it. I do think it's a good play and effective, but if you can fire the puck up and catch the team <laughs> and they can't get out of their zone, doesn't that make a little yeah. bit more sense? Totally. Anyways, that's, that's just my little rant and what <laughs> Wayne taught me about the game. Well, speaking of teammates, you mentioned, I mean, so many playing partners in the crease over the years, Kelly, but you mentioned one at the beginning when you get to the Islanders, and I think throughout your time there, Billy Smith is a part yeah, of that team. he was. Um, were him in particular, but other guys, like, did you, did you learn off each other? Did you feed off each other? Did you share notes? I'm guessing it would, you know, it would probably vary widely from guy to guy. Was there anybody that you you walked away from learning a ton from, and what was the lesson from Billy? The answer to all those questions is yes. I learned from everybody. We took notes. We shared notes. Now, not notes that were written down, but mental notes. Uh, but I learned from everybody. If, if you can imagine this, I hope I'm not missing anybody, but I first went to training camp in 1980. I had a long way to go to get to making the New York Islanders. So there was Billy Smith, Chico Resch, Richard Brodeur, Jim Park, uh, I'm missing one other guy. Was Rolly there and, yet? Oh, Rolly Melanson. Uh, and then the next year they added, they got rid of uh, Richard Brodeur to Vancouver and they brought in Rob Holland. He had been in Pittsburgh's organization. So I had to leapfrog a lot of people. 
Now, having said that, that was a good thing for me. I needed to play two full years in the minors. Well, I finished one more year junior than played two years in the minors. But I taught, or Roly Melanson taught me a lot about work ethic. Roly was tireless. Like, he never gave up, worked extremely hard off the ice. And then when I finally made it, and my second year, they traded Roly to Minnesota, and then it was just Billy and I, and I learned the mental part of the game from Billy. Uh, nobody's taking your job. You're not giving anybody your job. You're going to fight tooth and nail to keep your job. Now, you'll be very supportive, like Billy was, uh, but throughout the rest of my career, when I moved to L.A., uh, I was not handing my job off to anybody just because they were a high draft choice or they happened to be uh, moving up through the ranks. And, you know, if you're going to take my job, you're going to earn it. Uh, so earn it. And I remember one time with Billy, uh, I had started to play a little bit more often. And uh, I think Terry Simpson might have been our coach. And I saw what Billy was doing after practice. So I saw him marching towards Terry Simpson's office. And typically, because I didn't have the mental strength before that, I knew what was happening and I wouldn't do anything, wouldn't say anything. And this time I thought, forget it. You're going in right behind him. And when he starts to fight for more ice time, you're going to say, screw that. I deserve it right now. I'm playing better right now. And uh, so we had that really great competitive uh, competition between us that was really healthy. Like Billy and I are still really good friends. But Kevin, to your point about sharing, every once in a while, if I was not familiar with the other team, more importantly, individuals, I'd go sit beside him before a game. I'd say, that Tim Kerr, what does he do when he shoots? You know, because he had an incredibly hard shot, but he also, he would cup the puck over with his blade of his stick at the last second. And, and that added to that deception that we've been talking about. So he would share little details. Uh, the one thing you, you can't do with a partner is if they're not, if they don't need info, you don't need to share it with them. So for instance, uh, when I was in LA and I was a veteran now, and there, the other goalie would be playing, I wouldn't go sit beside him and just start talking and, and sharing if if he didn't need it. Now, if they said, and a lot of times they would, like a guy like Rob Stauber would say, hey, do you have five minutes? I just need to know about the Calgary Flames and Gary Roberts and uh, and Joe Neuendyke and all these other guys. So, yeah, you sit down you say, yeah, in this situation, likes to do this, Joe Neuendyke might be the best guy deflecting the puck, and here's where he likes to stand, and he likes to get that – amazing slap pass from Al McKinnis so you can't come out to all those little things. So you share a ton of information. I'm lucky guys because I never had an enemy playing with me. I never had one guy that I couldn't trust. I never had one guy. And I've heard the horror stories that, you know, the partners don't get along and that must be incredibly difficult to play. If, if you know that your partner is hoping that you're going to fail. Okay. So I got to ask then you see these days, you'll head into a shootout. And guys will go to the bench, not a, not a lot anymore, but some guys will go to the bench and they'll ask, they'll either ask their partner or even look at an iPad. If just if Kelly Rudy's in a shootout in today's day and age, is he checking the iPad to see what a guy's top moves are, or would you rather just read it as it comes? No, I would like that information. If I had the ability to look at a tablet, for sure. Um, and I, I wouldn't rely on it 100%, but certainly I would most likely think that in today's game, there's a 75% chance that that guy might go back to the well because most players do. You, you, you try and put a player in a position where he's going to panic. Now, in today's game, they panic far less frequently than in my time. 
and uh, what they've been taught. The one of the greatest things that shooters have been taught in the last, say, three, four, or five years, and I talk almost every broadcast about it: in tight, elevate. So uh, they've never been better at doing that. And so that would be on my mind if I'm a goalie going into a shootout or a penalty shot or something. I have to definitely make sure that when I take away the bottom part of the net, I have to try and find a way to keep my body as upright as possible because these guys are deadly. Uh, two things I want to cover. One is your transition as a broadcaster. Uh, did you lean on your playing experience in goal and uh, adapting over time to what you did from the studio to being a game analyst? 100%, Darren. So that was, uh, first of all, the one quality that I took from playing to my broadcasting career was hard work. So I knew that I needed to put in the time and the effort if I ever wanted to have a career in broadcasting because although you're talking about the same or you're, it's the same game, it's two entirely different jobs, as you know. So uh, I had to learn a lot about uh, how to take my knowledge and sort of find a way to express myself, uh, tell the people why something's happening, not what is happening. Um, all these little things, but it's it's interesting. I would say about two years out of your playing career, you're you're no longer even close to being an insider anymore. No matter what somebody thinks, you're you're only a really an insider when you're a player or a coach. And for a year or two after after that, you can try and do all the you know, question, answer, asking and all that phone as many people as you like. You're not an insider anymore. Uh, the other part is we're used to seeing you smiling and laughing and, uh, being, uh, so affable and friendly on the air. Uh, one of the biggest misconceptions is that you were the same way as a player. You were very competitive, very, very competitive, <laughs> right? I had a hate on every single game. I, I hated every single guy on the opposition. Um, and I had to play in a state of hatred. I, I couldn't go play uh, if, if I knew my buddy was on the other team and maybe we'd skate in the summer or something. That just wasn't in my nature. I had to get to an emotional state where uh, it, I, I really needed confrontation. I like confrontation. Um, and so, it, by the way, that would disappear within about three minutes or four minutes after a game. I was, re I had a really good ability to get to that level of hatred and then just turn it off after a game. But, uh, the only person I'd hate after a game was myself if it went poorly. So I, uh, I wish I had been kinder to myself because I remember so many games after a game that I thought went South and I'd get in the car and Donna would be there and I'd be swearing and mad at myself. And, I recall one time playing for the Islanders and we lost at home and I think we were busing to New Jersey and Steve Conroy was on our team and he was a fantastic defenseman. And, uh, I played lousy that night. I'm furious. I'm sitting on the bus and, and I'm stewing and Steve Conroy comes on the bus and he looked as relaxed as, you know, like the greatest day in the world. And he sits a couple seats in front of me opens a book and he's casually reading this book. And I'm thinking, how in the world can you be like that? Then I'm thinking about a day later, I'm thinking, I wish that was me. I wish that's how I approached the game that, you know, once the game's over, it's over and you know, you move on. And uh, I don't know how I had the ability to play with that hatred 
and played poorly and then somehow rebound the next night. But uh, I wish I would have been more forgiving of myself because I think it would have been healthier. So it leads into mental health and, and the work that you've done and, uh, yeah. and how you have uh, have really been an advocate of this. Uh, Same with you. Yeah, but it's 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 where we lean on each other and learn from each other, and and I've have learned uh, so much from you. the The idea of uh, of being able to handle things in day to day life, and and what would you have approached your game differently, knowing what you know now, or is that just how you had to play the game? Oh, that's a really great question. One that I had not thought of. Um, that's I think my answer would be that that's just how I had to play yeah. the game. And there's we nothing didn't. wrong with that, right? There's, there's no, nothing no. wrong. As you long as you have, No matter if you're back in that time or in today's world and you've admitted to mental health issues, you still have to find a way to power through. You still have to do the work, right? You still have to uh, find that strength. And whether you need somebody to do it or not, that's okay. So, uh, you know, to your point, though, Darren, I did come to a crisis in 9293 where the entire uh, pressure of playing that position, playing on a team with Wayne Gretzky, uh, it got the best of me. And leading into that year, I remember in the summer, it was my 10th year in the National Hockey League. I knew the numbers from the Players Association that most careers are three, three and a half years. So I'm starting to have that self-doubt. I'm training for the training camp in the summer. And I remember thinking, hmm, I wonder if I can do this again. I wonder if I continue to stay at this same level. And my thoughts got the best of me in uh, December. We were playing in Milwaukee in one of the neutral site games, and I had a horrible night by myself. And it all came unraveling uh, shortly after that. I played about another week really well. Then I played horrible at home one night. And I remember Barry Melrose came in the dressing room after, and he's talking to the entire team. By the way, I had my best start ever. I had two months of the best, best hockey I'd ever played to start a season. And Barry said, and even Kelly can play better. And here's how polluted my mind was. I thought to myself, nope, he's wrong. I, I can't play any better than this. And then the moment I admitted that to myself is when I went right in a ditch. And to your mental health component to, of this, later, about two months later, Barry Melrose comes into the dressing room. It's a Saturday afternoon. We're playing at home against New York Rangers. Rob Stauber is playing because I'm horrible. And uh, in behind Tony or uh, Barry Melrose walks Tony Robbins. They go into the coach's room, close the door. Mere seconds later, the door opens and Barry asks for me to come. And I, I got to tell you, I got pretty emotional because I'm thinking to myself, and I won't swear on this uh, Zoom podcast, but you can, you can figure out what words I added in there. And I'm thinking... Why in the world would Tony Robbins want to meet the worst goalie in the National Hockey League? Seriously, I'm the starting goalie for the LA Kings, and that's what my mind was telling me. So I go in there, and I won't go into the details uh, simply because of time, but that meeting changed my life. It changed my career. Uh, he put me on a career path that I played another five years, and I tell Barry Melrose this all the time, and I've shared this with Tony whenever uh, we sort of shared conversation that uh, I'm forever indebted for, to those two because that was my introduction into mental health and uh, it got me back on track. And so I'm happy to say that uh, it's a, an important uh, part of life now and we all share our stories and our troubles and, and it's a good thing because uh, once you know you can't do it on your own and you can reach out for help, man, it's a good feeling. 
That's awesome. And, and you know, it's funny. Uh, was it Jeff Marshall had such yeah. an influence? Jeff Marshall? I, we have to meet Jeff Marshall at some point. I mean, he, the sliding right. doors of, uh, of, of his interaction, Tony Robbins. And now this, this relationship that you have with, uh, with Woody uh, during your broadcast. And I, hear, I, I love it when I'm just ha- watching. And you, you say you were talking to the guys at, at Ingle Magazine. Uh, uh, is it like you're, you're a guy that played the position and you're still leaning on people to learn more about the position. Uh, I'm curious uh, yeah. what your questions are, what you see, and, and when you talk to Woody about these things during the bubble when we watched it in particular. Well, I'll just reach out if, if I'm unsure what my eyes are telling me. And, and uh, like in the bubble is different because uh, unlike in the studio, as you know, Darren, you don't maybe have as many resources. Like uh, you, have, you can ask for things, uh, but when you're secluded in your home office like I was, like I had an iPad, I had a desktop, I had uh, everything right at my disposal. I just look over start typing in. And so I'd type in questions like, why is this goalie doing this? Or what is this called? Or, you know, many different yeah. things. And, or if I couldn't come up the, with the answer quickly, uh, I would just send Woody a, a text or something. Or, hey, you watching this game and what's going on and why is he doing this? And, and I've done that with other goalie coaches that I admire and respect. And, and I'm so helpful or lucky to have the help from the goalie community that they'll They'll explain to me in today's uh, terms what's going on, and I'm so lucky to have that uh, those resources because without it, um, you know, I would look like a guy that's not willing to learn or change or adapt, and and I don't want to be that guy. I want to be that guy that everybody says, okay, so Kelly played in the '80s and '90s, but he's he's pretty current. He knows what's going on, and he understands right. how the game has changed and. And why goalies are doing this, you know, I can still disagree from time to time because I think something different might uh, be better, but that's okay. I'll just fill in the blank. Uh, the studio does have resources. Kiprios was usually just taking up all the resources. <laughs> that's all that was happening. The, the, like, the amount of clipping stuff that was going on. So just to, to, to call that out. That's uh, hilarious. <laughs> so and I, I'll just, I'll share the one story about uh, Vasilevsky's pads. So yeah. There was that one uh, big juicy uh, rebound, and I went into great length about his uh, core pads and and why that's important. Not to look at every rebound and say, "Oh, that's a bad rebound." Some goalies, including Vasilevsky, love the ability to ha- have those pads and push the rebounds out past the traffic. And so that's just in layman's terms, and Kevin can explain it better. But that's a simple part of uh, sending out a text and understanding what equipment each goalie might be wearing. Well, what Kelly's not telling you is that it's not that he's reaching out to me. I'm constantly badgering him on text messages, <laughs> trying, trying, trying to slip it in there. Because every time he says my name on the air, like my my world lights up, and all my friends and family think I'm a big deal. So thanks for always giving the shout out, Kelly. Uh, you know, this is funny, Kev. So, man, I think it might have been our first year with the new uh, Sportsnet deal. Darren, you would have been on set maybe, but I was on with Nick Elliott and. Uh, and uh, George, and I think it was the first year we started talking about head trajectory. And Kevin, I had been t- talking to you, and and we had known each other for years. And all of a sudden, I got nervous in the segment, and I I didn't call you Kevin. I can't remember. I called you a different first name, <laughs> and I'm thinking. And then I got I got all nervous in the segment. Then I'm like, well, that's not right. Kevin's his name. And then I, I probably booted the segment around because I was thinking. 
I hope I have to, I'm going to have to call and apologize. And I did. And I just, <laughs> but Darren knows that's how live television goes. You make some stupid mistakes once in a while. But is it not the, freaky the, how much these, these guys know about the position? Like you've been oh, around yeah. it. I've been, and, and I just cannot believe uh, how much they are tied into the, to the modern playing of the game. It's, it, it blows my mind. So true. And so, Here's my point. I made that I was the guest speaker at a Calgary Flames luncheon a number of years ago. David Marcoux was the goalie coach. And uh, I recall saying something like, your goalies and Kipper was Kippersoff was goalie at the time. And I said, your goalies are so lucky to have a guy like uh, David Marcoux because uh, he's taken the time. Like he's, he's trying to learn every little aspect of the position. He takes the time. He's like a professor and he wants to know everything about the position. I, on the other hand, I don't really feel it all that necessary anymore. I, I don't look at all the tiny little details. And so guys like Kevin and Eli Wilson and, and David Marcoux and all these guys that I really respect and all the other goalie coaches out there, they're like professors out there and, and we can all learn from them. And it's just amazing. The amazing part is that we're actually, I think the kind term that Johan Hedberg once said, you're, you're a, you're a geek, you're a goalie geek. And I mean that with affection, he said, (laughs) the amazing part actually is to take a conversation with me, which as you know, is not a short conversation. I think my text messages are probably like small novels and Kelly has to turn it into a 30 second clip (laughs) and he always gets it right on the air. So that's the truly impressive part. Well, that's the bad thing I feel about when we have a a conversation, I might be two minutes from going to air. And Kevin, yeah, you do like to talk. And I'm like, Thanks. I, I I got the gist of it. I wish I could I gotta talk go. more, but seriously, that red light's coming on in second. And so thanks for the info. Uh that's uh that's awesome. Hey, what would you put on your mask if you were uh if you were gonna paint a mask today? What uh what part of your life, what part of a nickname, what part of uh family or tradition if it wasn't tied to a team? Did you have you ever thought of that? Well, I, I think that uh, I for sure on the back of my mask, uh, the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, I had the initials of my kids. Uh, so I would have had that. Um, and then uh, I may have put in today's game, I may put my true nickname on it because most people, for whatever reason, uh, it's pretty obvious, the Hollywood's. Uh, sign on my mask. Most people think my nickname, uh, my true nickname was Hollywood. It's not. It's one that very few people know of. And uh, it's actually tunes because I love music and I love music. And so two people to this day still from the hockey world still call me that uh, Gretzky and Brent Sutter. Whenever I run into them, it's hey tunes. And and so I might put that on my mask and there would have to be a mental health component on it for sure. Something about to uh, be kind to yourself or, or something like that, because that's such an important part of our uh, discussion daily here in our house. You're right about that. And uh, what's your handicap down to? Oh my gosh, it's horrible now. Here, <laughs> oh, I, I, as you know, from my uh, social media, my wife and I are addicted to golf and we play often. Uh, I can get into the eighties now, but, but uh, not not it's not a nice game to watch but here's how my mind works also because i love golf i'm playing with uh ej uh ethorn out at uh oh, yeah yeah out at Anna Jane, yeah yeah she's awesome about, she's awesome so three four years ago 
Donna and I are playing with her alone. So we're all having a good time. She's an incredible teacher of the game. I'm standing on the 18 tee box. I look at my scorecard. I'm at 74. So if I only get par, I'm going to shoot or tie my record 78. I shot a 10. <laughs> my, I blew up. My, my brain could not handle the pressure. And I, and I told her, that what is going on? She goes, that's the biggest mistake. It's just a number. You don't yeah. need to look at the scorecard and worry about what you're going to shoot. And so I've tried to take that advice, but I can't and I'm horrible. And I still, I just love the game for what it provides now in my life. And that's just a, a four hour getaway from everything else. I'm so glad you brought up her. I haven't thought of AJ in so long. Uh, she was a player back when I covered uh, oh, golf. Really? And then, then became a uh, caddy. And wow. Yeah. But a really cool person, too. Uh, really cool. I covered yeah. her on the PG LPGA Tour. I yeah. covered a couple yeah. of her stops here in Vancouver when she was still playing. And then when she went into caddying as well. She's fantastic. Uh, we have, uh, we've been uh, taking up too much of your time. So we'll, uh, we'll let you go. Uh, you've been on the range here with us. Uh, we'll call it that, uh, <laughs> Kelly. But, uh, but thanks for doing this. Uh, it's, it's just uh, great catching up for all of us from, from different uh, walks of life, from Hutch and uh, Woody and myself. Uh, proud of what you've done, what you've accomplished, and uh, proud of uh, you being an ambassador for the goalie world and the mental health world. So uh, thanks for doing this, pal. All right. Thanks, you guys. And hey, here's how we like to sign off now. Uh, sending my love to you guys. Take care. You too. Love you too. So much in there, but the best part of the interview is Kelly wanting to come back and do a little bit more uh, with you guys, especially in the pro rate segment. So uh, when he does that, I would love for Kelly to break down some of today's game and maybe a little bit uh, like Hutch, you mentioned uh, at the close of the conversation, some of what he saw uh, when he played and some of his own video. Yeah, I, I think for sure he's going to, as he as he sort of alluded to in the interview, he's going to see many things that a goalie today would see. Um, but of course, the way he played a lot of those things was quite different. So the reads will probably be the same, but the explanation about the save technique will be a little bit different. Um, for sure, we'll load up a few fun ones for him to uh, to enjoy and break down for us. Um, but I think we're going to gain a real appreciation for the goaltenders of yesteryear, so to speak, um, and and the level of of technique in their game at the time. I mean, obviously, there's so much more different today um, but, but as we talked about, there's, there's so much that's the same. And I think we have a lot we can learn from every generation of goaltender. I loved that he talked about, uh, learning from Glenn Hall, you know, and there's a right. whole nother generation as well. So, uh, you know, know, knowing your history is important, even, even when you're on the ice and in the crease. Well, I love the, I love the paddle down. I had no idea. And I want to go find footage now, like, like of eight, you know, eight, early eighties or mid eighties, Kelly Rudy with the paddle down and sort of, you know, a pioneer. You don't have to look at, uh, at more than, more than five saves. Yeah, you'll find and, it. And you'll see it. It's one of the things that I noticed right away in, in getting ready for the conversation was how much he used paddle down. I didn't realize it then. I didn't realize it, uh, uh, beforehand, but I was, I was watching these, the save sequence. I'm like, boy, he used paddle down a lot. Perfect. Brilliant. I love it. I love it. I mean, the game, that's the beauty, right? Whether it's asking whether Kelly Rudy, how, what he would make of sense arena and the ability to use virtual reality or, 
being one of the first guys in Paddle Down, it's constantly evolving. And as we've said so many times with so many different guests, to me, the guys that have success and long careers are the guys who who are not just willing to evolve, but eager to look for new ways to get better. Uh, Kelly Rudy played in an era that uh, really spanned a long uh, and a lot of advances uh, in the game. But what I appreciate uh, above all when it comes to broadcasting is he doesn't lean on the fact that he played 15 years in the National Hockey League uh, and knows everything in the game. He is, and this is partly to to pump uh, Woody's tires and, and Hutch uh, at Ingoal Magazine, but uh, but also to to Kelly's point of view and how he approaches his trade, that he is learning and wanting to uh, advance and be able to know what he's talking about when it comes to different save sequences or choices and, and, and the like, instead of saying, well, what's he doing letting in a puck from there? I respect that so much about the way he, the way he, um, you know, does his job. And exactly as you say, the fact that he's willing to lean on other people, nothing drives me more crazy than the old pro who tries to shut a conversation down by saying, well, you didn't play in the NHL. So how would you know? Um, just, just love what he's doing there. Or does a broadcast without explaining it properly. And, yeah, as he says, so yeah, wh- tell me why, not what. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we should, as much as I enjoyed having my ego pumped and the tires pumped by Darren asking about me, I think it's a credit to Kelly, the person. Like, this is not a regular conversation. He doesn't have to lean on me. Every once in a while, I might have something insightful that I can help with where he asks a question and I answer it. And every time, he credits it. And there are a lot of people in the industry that don't necessarily do that. So like, it's not like we're having weekly conversations and he credits me every once in a while. When, 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 he, when I do, when he does reach out the odd time and, and I am able to be helpful, he always gives me credit on the air. And then my phone blows up and my family's so proud and I get all those things. So it's really cool. But I think it also speaks to the character of the person because that's not necessarily, you know, Darren, that's not necessarily how it works in this industry. You're bang on there. And uh, without going down that path too far, uh, it is a real uh, credit to uh, to Kelly and how he applies uh, his craft in both the studio and the broadcast booth. And just know, whenever he does talk to you, Woody, he has multiple games going on, and there's a good chance he is within a minute and a half of going on the air, and Ron or whoever's hosting with him is saying, Kelly, 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 put your ear in. Kelly, we got 10 seconds. And he's saying, yeah, Woody, 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 I got to go. I'm, and, I'm, and I'm just sitting there going, Kelly, I just got one more question. Oh, I, I, last question. We'll, we'll know you've made it, Woody, when we actually get to see Kelly on air talking to you on the phone because he can't put it down. Yeah. Um, uh, I got to go. I'm live on <laughs> Hockey Night in Canada. Uh, that was a fun conversation. Looking forward to it uh, uh, again as we reconnect with uh, the former Medicine Hat Tiger. And wasn't that a cool story? Crediting and talking about his buddy, uh, Jeff Marshall, uh, growing up and then how they're playing ball hockey in the backyard and Jeff's dad uh, giving him. <laughs> There's a lot of sliding doors, things where it just fit the right time. And, uh, and it all leads to this episode of In Goal Radio the podcast. Uh, thanks to Kelly Rudy. Thanks to Cam over at the hockey shop, the hockey shop.com source for sports Surrey. And thanks to Hutch and Woody as well. And most of all, I uh, really appreciate you, the audience uh, for your dedication and your support of in goal magazine, in goal radio, the podcast. I'm Darren Millard. Thanks for listening to in goal radio, the podcast. 